Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. And today it's episode 138. I'm really cracking up these numbers here. Uh, cranking up, I should say. Speaking of cracking up, uh, my guest today is uh, Matt Jones. Hey, Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks, Lauren. How about you? Yeah, I'm all right. Yeah, we've had a few technical issues, um, and, uh, but I think we're, we're, we're up and, and running. We've managed to make this connection work. So I know the sound uh, might be a, li- a little, a uh, little interesting, but um, but it won't affect our uh, our Hollywood production here. Um, so I would say uh, uh, I'm I'm going to say to our audience, um, Ramadan Karim, um, which I know you know what it means, and that might give us um, a bit of a hint. Ramadan has has started, and. You and I actually attempted to do this podcast a year ago, so uh, we've, we've had plenty of time to think about this. Um, but you and I um, share uh, one or two things in common, one of which is that we have both worked um, in a variety of contexts um, with athletes um, who need to observe Ramadan. And um, that is why I'm really interested in having this conversation with us, because I think that that we can give um, an interesting perspective as practitioners that have worked in this field and sort of maybe separate and then blend the science from practice. So this is going to be a bit more practice focused than I, uh, than I typically uh, would go because I think that that's a particularly important angle with, with this topic. But before we, we get into Ramadan um, and nutrition and particularly Ramadan fasting and, and performance and It'll probably be a bit more football focused, but it will be appropriate for many kinds of um, performance uh, focused athletes. Give us a little bit of background about yourself, Matt, and you know who is Matt Jones and what you've been up to. Um, uh, bearing in mind, I first met you seven years ago, so a lot's happened since then. I know. Yeah, time flies. I, I've definitely uh, definitely learned a lot since then. That's for sure. Um, I guess one thing that's worth pointing out, Lauren, before we begin the the discussion is it's probably worth highlighting the fact that we're definitely both not experts. There's a, there's a lot of great uh, practitioners and, and researchers out there that have done some really great research in this area. And, and we're just kind of two practitioners, I guess, that have experienced it in, in many different environments um, across the globe, really, in, in different different areas. And I think that's, uh, that's going to be a, an interesting insight into our, our experiences as practitioners, uh, especially from, from the, Western, the Western world working in, in that um, community. Um, so if I just like briefly introduce myself, so hmm. I guess like most people um, working in, in the applied setting, I grew up as, a, as an aspiring sports person and I sustained various knee injuries, ACLs, meniscus tears, all those kind of things. And I found myself getting really chubby, to be honest with you, and a little <laughs> bit soft around the edges. So I started reading about nutrition and, and became fascinated, to be honest. And at that time, there was no real like clear pathway into applied sports nutrition uh, obviously there were some great practitioners like Louise Burke and uh, Ron Moore and Don McLaren uh, James Collins and, and, and yourself uh, starting out in, in in sport but there was not really a, a clear pathway um, so I started off quite broadly and, and started off in, in sports science at Leeds Metropolitan um, I, I'm, I'm kind of glad that I started uh, with that with that broad kind of um, underpinning because I think that the introduction to exercise science and physiology was really important uh, but throughout that um, I, I, it really reinforced my, my interest in sports nutrition I, I was really fascinated by the impact of food and, and fluid and various supplements on, on health and performance and 
and recovery and all those kind of things. And so at the end of my undergraduate degree, I found that I really wanted to continue my work in or, or research and uh, studies in, in sports nutrition, but uh, I really didn't know anything about food. <laughs> so I wanted to find like a, um, a program that had a, a fairly strong like dietetic pro, uh, underpinning, but then also had sports nutrition as well. So I went on to do my master's uh, in exercise and nutrition science at the University of Chester. Um, and it was there where I was also able to pick up some internships with uh, the Welsh Rugby Union and, and Warrington Wolves. And so I was combining the, the obviously the, uh, the education with applied practice and learning from people like Mark Ellison. So Mark Ellison was my, uh, my mentor at Warrington Wolves and uh, Dr. Adam Carey at, um, at the Welsh Rugby Union. So I was able to ask them questions and just learn from their experiences and, and see how, like, how they applied it hands on. And, um, that ultimately gave me the the confidence to go out into the real world and, and set up my own kind of consultancy business um, straight out of my master's. Um, and I, I was fortunate enough to start working with some pretty successful athletes um, from predominantly from um, like field-based team sports, but also like corporate clients. So it's it's kind of strange how your own consultancy develops and you you end up in some like strange strange scenarios and. Um, so yeah, I guess I was I was making mistakes with with clients uh, learning really quickly because uh, when you when you're working with people like that like straight out of the blocks you 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 do make mistakes you fail and, and you learn and and develop your practice really quickly um, and then I guess my my first big role came about with uh, Stoke City so that, that was, they were uh, the first Premier League team so I was really uh, really fortunate to take on that role and. Uh, I spent some really great years there, and to be honest, that was my first real experience of of Ramadan in in a sporting context. Obviously, I'd I'd heard about it, but never really experienced it within within the sporting context. And I must admit, I, right now, I, I have have to apologise to the players that I was working with at that time because because <laughs> my recommendations back then were were pretty poor. I'll, I'll be honest. Um, I kind of made the mistake of isolating nutrition um, and just like like altering meal timings and saying yeah we should try that i was like really unaware of the the, the psychological elements the social elements the uh, all the like the holistic um, areas that, that impact um well impact like physiology and, and diet and, and everything like lifestyle in general it's a it's a huge change um so yeah i i, uh, I was working with those guys and I, this is my uh, public apology to them um <laughs> But yeah, we had some some great years at Stoke. I was working with some great, fantastic players and, and great, uh, great um, employees at colleagues as well. It was, it was great. Um, I was then lucky enough to go and work out um, in Brazil, so in Rio de Janeiro, uh, with CR Flamengo. So that was an Exos contract. Um, so again, an interesting, uh, both personal, uh, interesting experience, both personally and, and professionally. Uh, read into that what you will. It was, <laughs> life life in Rio was pretty cool. Um, so I, I was obviously working as a consultant at Stoke and also uh, Flamengo and then the opportunity came about to um, go and take on a contract with the, the United Arab Emirates Armed Forces. So I, I was completely out of my comfort zone there, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, but again, as a consultant, you just want to learn and, and I just wanted to like, in, basically dive in and, and just make mistakes and just extract as much information from different cultures and different environments as I possibly could. Um, so I, yeah, I, I went there, immersed myself in the culture and 
that's when it, it really hit me that Ramadan in like a, a Muslim majority country or, or an Islamic community is completely different from um, Ramadan in like a Western or in England, for instance. So obviously um, in, a, in an Islamic community that the whole environment is shaped to support people during Ramadan. So uh, restaurants will close down during, uh, during the day. Uh, if if they don't close down, there'll be curtains put up like outside the outside the restaurants, and I mean work times change, so your work schedule will change. So rather than going in at like seven a.m., we were going in at like nine a.m. and uh, it, it, it like the whole lifestyle changes to support that, and and that's that's the big difference initially that I noticed. It was it was a huge difference, and to be honest, in, in the first year, uh, we didn't really have much impact. We we were kind of encouraged by the. The officers at the time, so so the, the senior officers, we were encouraged to actually just immerse ourselves in Ramadan and, and experience it and fast ourselves. Um, so yeah, we, we kind of got involved and, and uh, did the fast uh, fasting experience, and we were invited to the to the iftar meals and, and the celebrations and uh, and everything like that. And it was it was really really interesting, and um, it gave us obviously a, a really great um, appreciation of of this like the the cultural elements and, and the things that we don't necessarily think about um as as practitioners working with athletes in in england um so obviously it also uh, exposed me to the the dietary patterns and, and the foods uh, on offer um because the the diversity of foods uh, changes quite considerably from um from like the, the normal diet if you like so if you imagine christmas day every day for 30 days or 29 or 30 days it's I, I, you could probably say it's similar in a way to that because they'll have traditional foods that are, mm. are kind of higher in sugar and higher in fats. And um, I know I, I, I personally, I noticed my, my observations were that uh, foods such as um, like root vegetables and, and green leafy vegetables were, were reduced uh, quite slightly during that, that period as well. So um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was a really interesting time and, um, obviously, hospitality is at the core of the Arabic culture, so uh, we were we were fortunate to kind of get immerse ourselves in that, and it, yeah, it really opened my eyes to the big differences um, between uh, between Ramadan there and, and then Ramadan back in England as well. And um, so, yeah, w while I was with uh, the UAE Armed Forces, I was also working at Stoke City. So there was this really weird thing where I was flying back into, and uh, it was it was quite the adventure. Um, but while I was out in the Middle East, I was also off, offered the opportunity to uh, go and work with uh, the Saudi Arabian national team. So uh, they were kind of just beginning their, um, their their qualification campaign for the 2018 World Cup. Um, and I was invited by the head coach then to uh, to come and work with them. And, and again, that was a completely different experience then because working with like uh, footballers compared to the military environment was very different. So you can imagine the, the military environment is a, is a very controlled environment. We were living on a, a, a military base. Um, we had control over everything. Uh, it was a very disciplined environment. So whatever the officers said that went, we could kind of set meal times, we could set training times. We, we were in control, but it, as you'll know, Lauren, footballers were more often than not <laughs> in control of everything, um, yeah. everything uh, in, in the football sense. So, yeah, we, again, it was just com completely different. So the learnings that I'd taken from uh, like the, the, the military environment were, were kind of non-applicable, if you like. like. I guess you could say that the general uh, principles still applied, but 
um, the uh, yeah the, some of some of the more intricate details are definitely not, and I'm sure we can go on to discuss. We them. will. We'll get we'll get deep in into that stuff because you've yeah. you've still got a few more experiences to share with us uh, yeah, in, uh, in your in your professional journey, and then uh, then we'll get into it. Yeah. So. Um, uh, so Saudi Arabia. So yeah, we we qualified. Oh, well, we qualified for the World Cup. Then uh, again, we can uh, we can go into that because we actually experienced a game against Australia, um, and it fell during Ramadan, and it, it was in Australia in Adelaide. Um, so yeah, we we had to make some serious modifications. Uh, we, were, we were quite fortunate because um, it was I think it was winter in Adelaide, so the, the day was fairly short. So uh, it was. But then moving from Saudi Arabia to Adelaide, that proved. Uh, fairly challenging as well and I'm, I know that you've experienced uh, some, some similar challenges as well so mm. I'm, I'm sure we can move on to that so um, and then more recently so I went over to to America um, so to take on the role as uh, director of sports nutrition at uh, the University of Oregon um, again that was a, a completely different experience college sport it, it basically engulfs you um, and I, I must admit that my, my wife uh, she fell pregnant pretty much as soon as we arrived and I was like fully like swallowed up by a college sport, like literally from the dusk till dawn. And um, yeah, it really like tested our relationship. And she, she, uh, she moved home after three months and I kind of stayed on and tried to make it work. But it was, that was the wrong decision. I should have kind of pulled the plug earlier, I guess. And uh, yeah, it didn't work out. So um, a, a great experience though, nonetheless, uh, a great learning experience. Um, and then, yeah, so most recently, I'm back in, in the UK working as a consultant with West Ham United in the Premier League and, and Brentford Football Club uh, in the Championship, and then uh, also uh, Chelsea Women, um, and now the United Arab Emirates national team. So again, we're on the kind of quest for um, World Cup qualification, but that's not... Whenever that will yet. be. <laughs> yeah, who knows, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome, Matt. Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to let you run with that because it's just fascinating. Uh, all of that happened like in the last seven years, more or less, from when I first met you. Um, yeah. And I won't. I, I've I've had some some of that. Is uh, I share some similar experiences, but I'm going to have you do a lot more talking than me in this particular podcast because you're the guest today. Um, but you know, I was listening to all that, and through the cracks of some of that, um, there were some things that I thought were really interesting, which I do want to get into because something that comes up a lot in this podcast is, you know, there's science, there's good science, high quality science, there's terrible science. But even when it's good quality science, um, it doesn't mean it's relevant or it's not practical or applicable. And I have to say, from my own experiences of of um, working with athletes during Muslim athletes during Ramadan, particularly, you know, uh, you talked about the World Cup. Obviously, I was also at the World Cup, and I embedded with the Egyptian national team to a level that I spent nearly six months with them, <laughs> and that was that was really hard work on many levels. You know, and you you said something that just blew me away when I experienced it myself, which was I had worked with some boxers and MMA athletes and a few other um, uh, types of, of, of athletes who happened to be, you know, they're in London, they happen to be Muslim and they was Ramadan, but there's a completely different scenario when um, everyone around them is not observing Ramadan and all yeah. the are open, in a team setting, everyone else is eating normally. You flip that the other way, um, 
it, it's a radically different scenario. And, um, and you add to that, you know, different cultures, different approaches to this. Um, it, it can get pretty crazy. And then you add on top of that, actually traveling, different time zones, um, um, which we'll get into. Because all this stuff are the sorts of issues that will present themselves to a performance nutritionist or a sports scientist and deal with this. Let's, let's just dial back a bit then. And, you know, we've, we've mentioned a few words like Ramadan, Ramadan fasting, and so on. Not everyone that's listening is going to know what we're talking about. Um, we would expect our um, Muslim listeners to be fully aware of all this, obviously, but not so much everyone else. So maybe just give us an idea of, you know, what is Ramadan, firstly? Yeah, absolutely. So R Ramadan uh, is an annual uh, religious event that's um, undertaken by healthy Muslims across the world, really. Um, it's the ninth uh, month of the Islamic uh, lunar calendar. And I think it's worth uh, kind of pausing at the lunar calendar part because that creates some like kind of practical um, kind of considerations and, and issues because it's, it's very difficult to predict. So they'll say that it's going to start at a certain time and they'll like earmark like three day period where it, it could start. But they're kind of relying on the sighting of the crescent moon uh, for it to start. So uh, as, as a practitioner, I, I remember in various, uh, in various roles, I have like two plans. So you have the, the non-Ramadan plan and then the Ramadan plan. And then when you watch the news and you see, okay, well, Ramadan's tomorrow, then you kind of discard, discard the, the normal plan and then go, go on with the, with, the, uh, with the Ramadan plan. So yeah, it's, it's, with, the, with it being kind of the start of Ramadan is obviously the sighting of the crescent moon. And, um, so there, yeah, that can that can uh, lead to some kind of planning and, and uh, planning, yeah, and practical issues. Uh, so it, it generally lasts for around twenty uh, to thirty days, um, obviously from the first sighting of that uh, crescent moon. And uh, during that time, um, obviously uh, Muslims are in, um, kind of fasting, so they're kind of not consuming any uh, food or fluid, and uh, they're abstaining from kind of simple activity and uh, and sexual activity as well. And uh, it's it's really kind of a time of like re, uh, reflection and, and gratefulness and um, trying to like reconnect uh, with, uh, with with the religion itself and so that they'll read the Quran quite frequently and again it's worth touching on that on that point because um, I, I noticed that on on a number of occasions that uh, it can be quite tiring uh, if they're spending the day reading prayer that um, then it, they can be quite fatigued towards towards the end of the day and that obviously has implications then for the practice and things like that so uh yeah so in the uk this year um it falls between the dates of uh, the 23rd of april and, and the 23rd of may um and uh, i mean if we look at the where it falls this year it's quite challenging because uh the days are lengthening every every day um so if we look at the the first day of ramadan uh the, like the, the, the um you, you broke the fast with sahur um and it was between i think it was 8 30 uh, and then by the end of uh, Ramadan, uh, you'll be breaking the fast um, with, with the iftar at like nine o'clock. So th there's there's variation, obviously depending on uh, geography and, and the climatic conditions, and um, it, it does make it quite quite challenging. And and it can vary uh, considerably. Like within the UK, for instance, there's uh, there's considerable variability between like London and like the northern cities and things like that. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite complex and. Well, the logistic, I mean, the logistical nightmare, um, especially when you, you know, we, we take this beyond an individual to a team where, 
there's a lot more going on than just nutrition or just prayer. There's coaching yeah. meetings. Um, I found the logistics of that, but I think it's just worth just coming back to the fact that there is a difference obviously between what most of us um, see in the calendar, which is based on the Gregorian calendar system, of course, which is why every year this, this whole thing keeps shifting in a different direction, which just adds to the problem, doesn't it? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, so it's the, the, the ninth month of the Islamic lunar calendar. So it, obviously it shifts forward um, every month or every year, sorry. Uh, and it shifts forward by around about a month. Yeah, so um, it will continue to move. And so in the last, I would say, like five years, it's kind of fallen during summer. So you, ha you add to that the environmental challenges. And obviously I, at the time I was in the UAE, which is... <laughs> Not sure if you've ever been there in the summer, but it's uh, it's not a, a nice place to be outside in, in 50 degrees. And but obviously you're forced to be outside in, in many cases, especially yeah. with, with military environment. And uh, so add to that the environmental challenges on top of everything else. It, it does become really challenging. So, I, and I think it's important because you know we're talking about well we're talking about this from the perspective of you know nutrition. Uh, for health, nutrition for performance, nutrition for recovery, hydration. Um, you know, we, we got it easy um, um, in, on, in our world, so to speak, and our respective religions, whether you're, you know, Christian or, or, or you don't follow a religion or whatever, the, 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 you know, there are set times of the day you can do things. It's all rather easy. But as you've already mentioned, there are, you know, there are factors like, the time of day, um, uh, sorry, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the ways in which the day changes week on week in terms of when it's light, you know, dawn and dusk and so on, which is all, you know, all factors here really does make life quite difficult. Maybe, um, in terms of Ramadan itself and particularly, the fasting that goes with it. Maybe you could just take us through, you know, the, the, the those practices um, and we'll make it relevant to, to sports nutrition shortly. Yeah, sure. So the fasting period obviously depends on, well, the duration of the fast depends on where you are in the world, obviously the geographical and climatic conditions. But yeah, so during that time, uh, you're not allowed to consume any food or fluids. Um, you can get exemptions. So the young uh, and elderly and and like unhealthy people so if you have like diabetes or uh, pregnant people can get exemptions and you can also apply for exemptions for work and travel so if you are competing as, as an athlete like you can apply for for the exemption but um but generally speaking yeah most if not all healthy muslims will uh, will be fasting during that time and um yeah that brings about some some challenges because uh, obviously they're not they're not able to consume any nutrient or or fluid or so they they can become con like dehydrated and then uh, fatigued as well um, I think uh, if you look at some of the literature that there's um, I mean most um, subjectively most uh, Muslim athletes kind of report some kind of um, negative uh, aspect for from the from the Ramadan fast on their performance so um, subjectively they, they definitely think that it has a negative effect but i think if if we take like the actual research there, there doesn't seem to be a massive reduction in performance um obviously if all the, the variables are controlled for so training load energy intake and macronutrient intake and things like that so i think that, that one of the most important things when considering like shaping nutrition around 
around the fast is the, the, the timing of training. So can you like alter the time of training? And obviously, again, that makes it really easy working with a, a team in a in an Islamic community because the, the, all of the players will be in that scenario. Whereas uh, here in the Premier League right now, it's it's very challenging because you're singling out a single player within a team. Um, so yeah, the fast itself is is. Uh, is, is challenging and you have to make some like significant changes. Yeah. And this is one of these scenarios where there are so many variables in this situation that the logistics of just trying to organize some sort of plan ahead of schedule. And I love the way you say you've got, you had the Ramadan and the non-Ramadan plan. I certainly had the same. Uh, and I would have multiple versions of the plan because you know, it's that thing. If it can go wrong, it will. And Mike, oh, it, it just things never went to plan. Um, yeah. And it wasn't because I was a bad planner. It's just things don't go to plan, particularly in that culture. They do things differently. <laughs> that's for sure. And I just there was something you just said there, which I think is worth mentioning. Which, um, in it, you know, in in principle, um, you can apply for an exemption. But that there are a number of things. So I thought, right, that's fine. When I was working at the World Cup, that's fine. We're going to get an exemption. Yeah, the imam, um, and he did go ahead and say, you know, this is important for putting Muslims on the mat. And, you know, um, you know, this is, this is, Allah would want this. And, you know, but the players themselves were then torn between what they felt they were being told to do by, you know, the imam or by the president or, you know, the football fans as opposed to their faith. Um, and you know they're sort of torn between the opinions of the coaches who are invariably European um, and um, their dedication to achieving a result in football as opposed to the more deeper religious beliefs and the consequences of not following um, the fasting side of this whereby they may be putting their family in shame um, and they wouldn't want to be, even if they could take a, a drink or a supplement, um, they don't want to be seen to be doing that. Um, all presented a number of issues that I found um, that added some challenges to the, uh, you know, the implementation of this. But um, I think you, you know, I think you make a good a good point there. The reality being, of course, it's you're not going to know until you actually find yourself in that situation. Um, with regards to the day, let's just quickly spend a bit of time on that because I think people need, particularly the, 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 those that are not Muslim and those that haven't tried this or indeed tried to actually fast. Um, this is not this is not just a uh, you know a couple of days of you know intermittent fasting in your five two plan or whatever. We are talking a serious amount of time which in itself presents problems which you may not want to try, um, you know, uh, on the day of a competition. You need to, lead, you know, lead up to this situation. But what, what actually are these guys or girls going through um, on this sort of day-to-day -day experience of Ramadan fasting? Yeah, I guess it's worth highlighting that um, most athletes have kind of developed their own, like, coping me mechanisms, if you like. And, and if... Uh, well, they were born that way, weren't they? That's the thing. Yeah. They've been doing it for a long time. Exactly, and if you also like look at some of the research in this area, it, it kind of suggests the fact that um, most athletes are actually kind of their individual coping mechanisms are driven 
primarily by like personal beliefs and, and traditions, not necessarily like evidence-based practice, which obviously like creates a bit of a bit of an issue for us because when we then try and go and implement evidence-based practice, it, it goes against everything that they've done for the last 20 years. And that, that creates uh, a bit of kind of, yeah, well, yeah, an issue, you know, and, and um, that, that of, uh, oftentimes limits um, our ability to actually apply new, new ideas and, and evidence-based ideas as well. Um, well, it's so, a period sort of butt in, but I think what's, what's really interesting about this is that Ramadan is a poignant time for belief generally, right? Um, and when we talk about evidence-based practice, I guess for us, it's like a religion within our own scientific sort of ideas. You know, we, we believe strongly in evidence-based practice and we, you know, we could talk for hours as to why we believe it's important. But belief is a funny thing, isn't it? And, and, and I know you know this well because you've been at the coalface of practice for many years now, but it doesn't matter how well-versed we might be in evidence-based practice, but unless we can get that belief or buy-in, I think is the word that we really want to get into, they couldn't care less about our scientific religion, could they? No, you're absolutely right, Lauren. Yeah, uh, I, think, um, I think that the point you touched on there about the, the belief, I think that during Ramadan itself, with with all the the, the kind of the, the religious the, the the religious element, the, the prayer itself, I, I think it really kind of empowers people. Um, so it, they they take on like a, a, a kind of stronger mental personality, I would guess. So so while it can influence people like negatively, that there are also individuals within a team that I noticed uh, were able to like maintain, if not even improve, perform better in mm. certain circumstances. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all approach in, it, it, in terms of um, the, the responses to uh, to the Ramadan fast. And um, yeah, it's very variable within within the team. Uh, in terms of like applying different ideas, that's obviously where you, you come into some uh, some challenges as well, especially as, as a Westerner and, and a non-Muslim as well, a non-Muslim mm. practitioner. That's where you can often oftentimes come into um, yeah stumble across some issues and i guess that's where it's really important to establish like strong relationships with uh with, with the people you're working with and uh, in football you don't often have time to to do that you know you're kind of thrust in i, I mean for myself i was thrust in uh, right at the beginning of the qualification campaign so we literally had a week together and then we had the first game and um so yeah in terms of establishing relationships it was that, that you couldn't really do that whereas uh, in the armed forces, it was a little bit different. I spent longer there. I was there pretty much every day and uh, working with them every day. And I, um, I was kind of encouraged to get involved in, in the whole Ramadan experience. So I had a better kind of appreciation for it and then developed some, um, an, a deeper understanding of what it is and how, what it involves. And then uh, from there, I was able to establish some relationships and then uh, kind of nudge them in the right direction, I, would, I guess. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, you know, you've, I think you make an important point there that I think, I mean, all the experienced practitioners that are listening will, will know this. And, you know, again, these are the, when we reflect back on our, our early careers, the mistakes that we would have made would have been, you know, just trying to get straight into being scientific based practitioners and all technical and, and actually sometimes just having a good chat and building up that relationship is, uh, is perhaps more important observe. I certainly found a, spending time observing. I mean, I was really lucky. I was embedded in the team for months, well, months before the, uh, the World Cup. 
and um you know having that relationship with like the chef and the team doctor and all the players and i had one or two um particularly well-known international football players who fortunately were you know playing in premier league teams who believed um in sport sports nutrition sports science one way or the other and and believed in me and what i was doing and they all played a role in that and again i think in that culture that's important um because unlike the military experience you mentioned which is very much a you know uh, command and control and a bow um it works slightly different um in, in those other cultures but because people that are listening are not only going to be um you know working in team settings they might be individuals i think we'll also touch on some areas that i think are relevant to everyone that is thinking about what can they do as it relates to um you know enhancing their health and recovery and performance during ramadan particularly through nutrition which is our perspective and and um our expertise and that's why i want to just start just go back to something you made a, a point about which i think we really need to get into is the difference between what we what we know from you know the studies and the science and the papers um but then there's also um what a lot of you know um teams particularly in you know, the average world they've got a lot of you know passed down the generations habits um combined with you know myths that come from social media and various other things that we're all acquainted with of course maybe you could just give us a, a few ideas firstly about the sorts of things that that they are doing um and then we can differentiate that from what we know from the evidence and then we can find a happy a happy ground there because there is a difference between you know the science and what's actually practical and relevant because not all of it's that important is it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a great point. And I think uh, if, if I just reflect on my kind of experiences with uh, the Saudi national team over in, in Adelaide, I think that would kind of be a, be a great place to start because I think um, I certainly make, made some mistakes over there that I think might be uh, useful learnings, uh, what they were for myself. And, and uh, I'm, I'm sure that other people hopefully can, can learn from that as well. So, um, so Ramadan at the time that they were um, the, the fast started um, around, I think it was six, uh, like 5.45 a.m. Uh, so Sahur was uh, like the, the meal that they consumed before that and like and the, before the, um, the Fajr prayer. Um, and so that was like the final meal that they consumed. Uh, and then obviously the, the fast uh, began in um, Iftar, so that when they broke the fast, uh, that was uh, around about, um, I think it was six, uh, like six o'clock or 6 p.m. Um, so it wasn't such a long day. Uh, so that enabled us to kind of um, kind of get um, some form of nutrition into them prior to the training. So we just moved uh, training back into the evening. Uh, so we started training around, uh, I think it was 7.30 or 8 o'clock. Um, but what, one thing that we kind of noticed was that, uh, and, and this, this point kind of stands out in my mind quite considerably, because when I asked uh, one of the players um, like what, what they normally did, what their like, coping mechanism was uh, for, uh, for Ramadan, his response was uh, sleep all day and party all night. <laughs> so, um, not literally party because obviously that's not that's not. Um, well, not our version of partying, Matt. But. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but partying as in just eating all day and then becoming nocturnal and just sleeping all day. Um, and I asked other players, and, and they were very much the same. You know, they they uh, they basically ate all night, 
um, and then the final prayer and, and ate, ate the final meal, so hoy, and then went to sleep all day. Um, and obviously that, that leads to some, some big issues, especially in relation to circadian rhythm, the, 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 obviously the um, melatonin, vitamin D deficiency as well. So many of uh, vitamin D deficiency is a, is a big issue in, in the Middle East, and uh, believe it or not, um, with all the sunshine. Uh, and so, yeah, there's obviously implications there as well. And um, yeah, so in terms of the lifestyle, it, it probably wasn't what we recommended. And um, and then in terms of breaking the fast itself, so they, they'd wake up and um, iftar uh, would be uh, like the traditional iftar. So it's traditional to break a fast uh, with dates um, and laban. So laban is like a milk drink. Um, so it, it's actually written in the Quran. So the Prophet Muhammad kind of uh, references it within, within the Quran to, to kind of do this uh, practice. So uh, obviously it's, it's a, a cultural thing that you, you don't really want to challenge, to be honest. And uh, in terms of like breaking the fast, uh, five dates is roughly like 30 grams of, of carbohydrate. And then 200 mil of laban is, uh, is roughly like nine grams of carbohydrate and six grams of fats and, and six grams of protein. So, and then you compare that to like the pre-exercise, like gold standard meal. And uh, obviously they're, they're way off really. Um, but again, because it's kind of part of the, part of the religion and part of the culture, it, it's very difficult to, um, to, to change that. So one way in which kind of we tried to influence them. So we had um, like a, a meal set out and, and the, we, we worked with the, with, with the chef. We had like a, a trip, like a normal meal, so a normal uh, Western meal, but with uh, Arabic foods as well. So we tried to encourage them to, to consume more. Uh, but again, because um, they, they were so used to kind of competing and training uh, and just following the, that, that kind of... Um, a kind of cycle of, of breaking the fast with dates and, and laban and, and gao. So gao is like a local coffee. Um, it's, it's pretty strong. So there's a, the caffeine content is, is quite, I don't know what it is exactly, but it's, it's fairly strong. Um, and then we went to train and, um, and then there was obviously opportunity then after, after training. So in the immediate aftermath of training, we, we had obviously recovery drinks. Um, I, I actually found that um, re removing the protein, so not necessarily a typical um, recovery drink. So, taking out the whey protein and just having carbohydrate in that uh, was actually more beneficial because um, I found that the whey protein was actually blunting their appetite and they weren't consuming as much in the evening meal. And then that, that could obviously lead to uh, energy uh, deficiencies for the day and, and potentially even macronutrient deficiencies for the day as well. So um, yeah. So, and, and then the next meal uh, would be the, like the recovery meal. And then um, prior to, like later on again, they would have a, another, another meal depending on, um, whether they need us to top up on calories or not. So one of the big questions that we had though was like, what is their total energy expenditure? Because they're spending the day in bed and uh, training load was not that high because we were like preparing for a game. So uh, the, the coach didn't necessarily put them through the rigor and all that, uh, all that much. So the, the volume and intensity was fairly low. And, and we know that footballers don't have such huge energy expenditures anyway. Uh, and we know that <laughs> let's not let's, let's not uh, break the, yeah yeah and obviously there's also um research to show that footballers are pretty sedentary in in their normal lives and uh couple that with the fact that they're in bed all day so we we, we really weren't sure of where to pitch like energy intake um so we obviously tracked body weight and things like that over the, the course of uh over, over the course of the camp but yeah we saw like pretty large fluctuations. So in terms of shaping the day, um, 
yeah, we tried our best. So I personally recommended them sleeping for like six hours after. Uh, so if if I just look at the the schedule that we uh, created, so it, ideally uh, we would uh, recommend them going to bed at like eleven thirty or twelve at the latest, and sleeping uh, until uh, the Fajr prayer or, or Sahur, waking up, um, and then kind of consuming a meal there. Um, obviously, that, that was, it was probably like a, a lightish meal. Um, there was obviously a, a mix of carbohydrate, protein, and, and fats within that meal, and no caffeine. Uh, so there was obviously some local dishes, so like beans and, and fool. Um, so that's like a, like a bean dish, um, and Arabic bread, so whole whole grain bread, so low to moderate glycemic index uh, carbohydrates. And then uh, obviously we then said, yeah, you can kind of go back to your room, relax, and go back to sleep if you like, just to try and like top up the sleep and try and get them closer to that eight to eight to ten hours of sleep but then obviously then we'd like them to get out and um and wake up and, and kind of expose themselves to some sunlight um but that that didn't that didn't often happen um i must admit they they tended to to stay in bed i mean if if not sleeping they stayed in their rooms with the with the curtains closed and um yeah so it, it was it was it was a challenge and then obviously that that kind of cycle uh, continued so they, they broke the fast with iftar um at, at like 6 15 6 30 and then uh training again at 7 30 or 8 o'clock yeah this is one of those things that and i certainly found in, in the reality of it it's you know one of the best things you can do as, as, the, as the nutritionist in this situation is and i've mentioned this loads of times on this podcast that you know our principal role actually isn't about the sports but or the performance it's about just keeping our athletes healthy mm. um and you know that's something that we need to keep in mind when we're doing these things you've already made it clear that you know they're, they're doing this for a reason and it's based based on their beliefs their religion and so on so we can't we can't stop that but what we can do at least is make the most of it and and you know turn the not so good things into better things and also not try and be idealistic about it because there is no way we can be perfect and you made a, a point which just blew me away when i saw it for myself was you know the uh, sort of a, it's like christmas day every day <laughs> you know once they can start feeding at the um, at the end of what our normal day would be um they really start going going for it and um you know, there's various reasons for that, partly because it's culture and, you know, uh, it's a social time as well, especially when you were traveling athletes, it's a time for them to get together and have a chat and be together. And, um, you know, uh, uh, eating is, you know, for, for millennia has been an important part of that process for all societies and, and cultures, but also, boy, do they have a sweet tooth. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, how did you find that side of it? You know, because obviously they've got, they've been doing things all their life, you know, before they were football players, after they're going to be football players, you know, there's a certain way of doing things and, you know, there, there are certain foods that form part of this. What, of those things, of those traditions, how did you choose you know, the ones that you wanted to focus on and why and, and how did you actually adapt them? I think that would be interesting. Yeah, and, and that's a, re a really good point. You, also, you almost have to kind of think about the, the sacrificial lamb, so to speak. You've got to sacrifice something. Um, and so obviously, I think you've talked about this before in, in your practice, 
potentially not on this uh, on this podcast, but you have that like pyramid of importance, and uh, I think it's uh, referring back to that. So obviously at the top you have like uh, supplements, and then below you have timing, and, and then the, the type or uh, and then the total. So if we think about that and, and we refer back to that kind of pyramid of importance, the sacrificial lamb really can become timing. So we can kind of sacrifice timing perhaps if we if we focus more so on on meeting total daily energy requirements and total macronutrient requirements. And um, obviously we, we can top up with various supplements because we, we know that um, they might run into some vitamin deficiencies and, uh, and things like that. But uh, yeah, going back to the, the initial point, I think focusing more so on just meeting total daily energy needs and, and macronutrient needs um, is, is, is the, the most important part. And that Matt is, is where it's interesting, isn't it? Because although effect at least in my experience you know let's say we we say look you, you've got typically three main meals a day right in that scenario you end up having more like two main meals but because the meals themselves tend to be higher in calories the total daily energy intake actually kind of works out doesn't it and we know that actually the timing isn't that important so you know yeah. the temptation then i think and this is where maybe where they try to overcompensate through their perceived importance for sports nutrition is that they'll then go beyond those two meals with the extra, you know, the extra drinks, the extra energy drinks, the extra protein bars, the extra snacks. And then, you know, they, they get into that scenario, which, which does, it didn't with my lot, fortunately, but it does happen where by the end of the campaign, they've actually all gained body fat and, uh, um, you know, increased risk of injuries and blah blah blah. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I think um, we we actually noticed that the, the camp itself, like excluding Ramadan from the scenario, like our players actually previously gained weight on camp anyway. Yeah. Um, and so, like the, the camp kind of does promote that because you're eating like like pretty much all the time, and you're pretty much going back. Well, it's to good food back. too, isn't it? I mean, yeah, these are mostly Premier yeah. League or equivalent to Premier League players. We had a um, top, 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 top chef who's, God, the food was fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you couple that with the, 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 the celebration that Ramadan brings. And yeah, it's a recipe for disaster sometimes. Yeah, if left, it, yeah, left to their own devices. And actually, again, that's the thing. Because the reason why I'm mentioning these things is, is there, there's, there's what people do. And then there's what you can do. Um, and we just need to be careful with that temptation to do those things because, you know, you've got to, you've got to be critically thinking about, well, what are the consequences of this? Like how actually important is this? And yeah. for those of us that have spent years, you know, learning about sports nutrition and you're tempted to dip your hand in all those strategies and then throw them at the situation without maybe realizing that they weren't as necessary as you thought. Cause like you said, It'd be interesting to hear what you say about this. Um, the football players, for example, but obviously not everyone's a football player that's listening to this, but not everyone's as active um, as they might think they are, particularly during Ramadan. And, and you guys, as we did, we had uh, GPS data to help inform some of that. Maybe, maybe tell us a bit more about that and how that influenced your decision-making with this scenario. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we obviously had a sports scientist with us. So Ar Arne Jaspers, uh, he has his uh, PhD from 
uh, Belgium, um, and he's obviously extremely, extremely talented in that area. And we, we lent on his uh, his advice and his support, and and that really helped us inform uh, whether or not they needed additional carbohydrate uh, during the session. And uh, even if they didn't, we often found that that we probably should give it to them because they 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 sometimes kind of failed to. Uh, to meet the the carbohydrate requirements, especially in like the preparation for a game. So if you think about like aiming for like eight grams per kilogram uh, of carbohydrate, part like on the match day minus one, it was w- within those kind of windows. Uh, like well, we had three windows quite fortunately, if not a little bit more. But uh, I think the, the addition of carbohydrate like prior to a game was was really important. But yeah, we, we were quite fortunate, obviously. Um, to, to utilize that GPS data and, and, and various other bits of data we had. Obviously, we were assessing body weight regularly. Uh, we were assessing uh, urine um, and, and thirst as well. Um, and wellness, um, sleep uh, and things like that. And um, there was often times where you didn't need any of that technology to realize that these guys were, were struggling. <laughs> they turn up after, after the fast and, yeah, the... the they were you, they were noticeably fatigued. Their shoulders were down and they were tired, but they they then had to go out and, and train. Um, so it, yeah, it's a, it's a real challenge. But data is definitely important, and it definitely helps us inform decisions um, in and around in and around the meal times, and and especially during training as well. You know, we talked earlier about belief, and when you were saying that, I thought it's also worth just going back to. The impact of of belief in thinking they should be doing something, um, and they can't. So, and by that I mean they believe that they should be drinking their sports drink. They believe that they should be eating certain foods during the day, and because they're not doing that, they they very understandably feel, with a lot of logic, that that's going to have a huge impact on their performance. Particularly, like I recall when we were playing non-Muslim teams or teams that had hardly any Muslim players or, or they weren't, you know, they, they had decided that they weren't going to follow Ramadan for, for that game. Um, the psychological impact of that is, is, is you know, sort of disarms their, that edge that they would normally have as confident elite football players or elite athletes in any other setting did you find was that something that you came up with in your experiences and, and how did you deal with that yeah i think i think there was in, in my experiences there was like a, a variation in, in responses so uh, variability sorry in, in responses so i noticed that some players they preferred to eat things uh, and that whereas others they they um obviously they they continue to fast and not necessarily on game day but um yeah i i think there was uh, a variation in, in the response uh, in response to Ramadan and the, and the subjectively that they both well different players kind of dealt with it in different ways and um, it definitely empowered certain people um, but I, th- I think it kind of boils down to how exposed they've been to sports nutrition recommendations and if they've been working with um, like performance staff uh, at their clubs and in, in Saudi Arabia um, I think much like um, many other places in the Middle East, there are European, uh, Brazilian coaches out there, and uh, they've started to implement sports science, but it's definitely in its infancy. So uh, the, the the local um, players' understanding of the importance of nutrition is is, is is not that great, to be honest. And it, it's definitely improving, um, and it's definitely getting uh, getting better each year. Um, but yeah, I guess the um, yeah, I saw some some different different responses. Yeah, it's the um... 
I guess that's where having with the national teams, you have the international players, a lot of whom are playing in European, British, even American now um, the equivalent of Premier League teams. And of course, they bring back that, that belief with them, um, which is all very interesting. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I think, so for example, um, if we just quickly touch upon what the science tells us, which, 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 is only, which is only what we've learned so far. It doesn't mean that it is right or wrong. It's just what the evidence currently tells us about not eating and drinking during the day and the impact that that actually has on performance. And I guess we could separate that from um, the one maybe exception to that, which is an extremely hot environment. Um, but other than that, like, like, obviously I know the answer to this, but I'm going to let you do the, the, do the answering. Like how, because some of the listeners are going, you know, but the reason why they're concerned about this is because surely if you're not eating and drinking, that's going to have a massive impact on performance. Um, um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I, originally I went into, um, into the, the realm of this area and thinking that's the exact same thing. I, I was thinking that, well, if they're fasting, surely there's going to be some implication here that their performance is going to suffer in some way. Uh, but when you actually look at the, the research itself, um, obviously there's various, a number of variables that is very difficult to con uh, control for. But there was a, a meta-analysis uh, recently, back in January, from a, the group, a group of researchers in, in Tunisia. And they actually found that the only kind of parameter or physical parameter to be influenced negatively impacted was um, peak power output during like re uh, repeated sprints um, so uh, again you could say that that might be related to just like psychological factors like if you're if you're fasting do you really want to push like extremely hard on the pedals like who knows so but then they looked at like other um, exercise modalities as well so it didn't really impact their anaerobic performance or, or aerobic performance either um, uh, and they looked at various times times of day as well, and uh, and they couldn't really establish um, any negative impact, um, any significant negative impact anyway. Um, so at least from my, from my reading um, and my understanding, that it's it's not huge. Um, yeah, not in like say football, for example. Um, I guess yes, for ultra endurance athletes, you know, if you're if, if you're a Muslim athlete and you're observing Ramadan and you're doing like a five-day multi-stage ultra-endurance event, that's going to be a terrible time for you. Uh, yeah. Football, definitely not. Uh, or like military, you know, military settings, you know, that's, you know, but, but if it's war, then that's a different scenario, maybe. Maybe your, your beliefs are put aside for, for that. Um, but um, I guess... The food thing is one thing, but the drinking thing is a whole nother one I found. So, you know, and I, I tried, I tried this. I, I, I will admit I did not last 30 days <laughs> for my sins. I tried, I was pretty, I found, you know, I, I made roughly a week. I'll be honest. I didn't go beyond that because I found it pretty hard. Um, but the food thing I could handle, um, you know, only eating, Sort of, you know, first thing and last thing, but not being able to drink fluids throughout the day was the hardest thing. What are your thoughts on that, and and um, and how you manage that? Yeah, and, and I, I would I would concur with you there, Lauren. That I actually really struggle with the hydration thing as well, and um, I think most people do, especially in the in the environments that we were in. It was it was hot. It was during the summer months, and it was incredibly challenging. And 
um, I actually noticed that uh, some of the, the locals they were they were rinsing their mouth with water and they weren't like actually drinking the water but to, just to try and get some relief they were they were rinsing uh, with with water so uh, yeah I think everyone everyone struggles with that especially in the, those climatic conditions so um, I guess in terms of managing that you just have to like reduce activity levels and try and stay sedentary within a climate controlled room um, yeah just try and control your sweat rate basically avoid um, any any like loss of fluid through through sweating well, that brings us back to logistics, doesn't it? Because I think, you know, there's only so much we can do uh, as performance nutritionists, for example. What we can do is interact with, you know, the people making decisions about plants. And in fact, if you're not involved in that, there could be some serious problems. Uh, I was very lucky to get involved very early on in some of the planning and some changes had to be made uh, based on... Um, you know, the, 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 what the coaches wanted in terms of training, times of day, feeding, um, you know, times of day that uh, uh, there, were, there were breaks that, that we assumed could be one thing, but the reality was the players still had to pray as well at different times of, of the day, of course, um, which just is, you know, really adds more and more challenges. And of course, when you're traveling with a team in this scenario, you've obviously got the, uh, the implications of different time zones and when the sun rises and sets, it all, it all changes. I mean, with regards to that, from the performance nutritionist perspective, what, what, what did you learn about that? And what do you feel should be the main considerations um, that you know the coaches and everyone else is uh, considering with regards to their plans that would would um, gel best with your perspective from a nutritionist's uh, angle. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got a, a funny anecdote that stands out in my mind again. It, when uh, when our head coach at the time, Bert van Marek, when he realised that the game fell on the same game, uh, same day or the same period as the the Australia game, he panicked. Um, and he he picked up his phone pretty quickly and said, "Right, what, this is good. This is going to be really bad. It was an important game. We needed to win. We were tied on points. We, we needed." Yeah, to the win. Australians weren't fasting, so yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and we were playing in Australia, and he, he was uh, he was really panicking. Um, so yeah, we had to we had to act quickly and, and develop this this plan. And again, it, it provides um, some some logistical nightmares. Uh, you're not just dealing with a team in in one country in a training camp. Uh, you, you then travel to to a different uh, a different country, uh, completely different time zone. Um, so yeah, logistically, I, my my learnings from it is it all kind of stems from or it all kind of lies in in your relationships with with the coaches and and uh, the staff that you're working with. So um, at the time, so we went in as uh, like a, a performance department. So the, the, the coaches and like sports scientists and things, but the physiotherapists, so like the medical department, uh, they were all um, like local Saudi. Um, and so yeah, just trying to establish relationships with them and um, and and the chef himself. Um, he was uh, I'm not sure, I think he was um, Egyptian, uh, but yeah, he he uh, trying to establish relationships with him and explain. Uh, explain plans um, and, and try and find out a little bit more about what he'd done in the past and see if we can um, like make, make some alterations um, and, and see if he was open to that because um, sometimes you know you work with with people that aren't necessarily um, open open to change and open to new ideas so you have to find ways around that and 
uh, and that's where the, the people skills come in, I guess, and, and, and just being able to break down those, break down those barriers and, and moving away from sports nutrition and moving towards, okay, well, how's your family? Like, what, what, what does your wife do? You know, the, the soft skills that are so important, but people don't often talk about. And, and then when you have established that relationship, they, they see the trust and the intent that you have, and, and then you can start to maybe nudge them in the right direction. But yeah. Uh, logistics is everything and I think that comes back to the point um, we made right at the beginning like the difference between working in in uh, predominantly uh, Islamic community and, and working here in the Premier League so if we bring it back uh, to present day so my my work um, right now in, in, in uh, with West Ham in the Premier League we have three players um, that are following Ramadan um, again the, the, the time's completely different it's a, a really long time uh, so they're currently fasting between like 3.30 and uh, like half eight, I think, 8.30 p.m. And um, and they, because they're part of a team, uh, we, we've tried to alter their training schedules, um, but the, the coach would prefer them to train together on, on Zoom, obviously social distance um, as as a group. Um, and and one of the players even uh, he has uh, he has a young uh, young child so he has to wake up and look after him so he, he doesn't he's not actually allowed to, well he, he probably is allowed but <laughs> his wife doesn't allow him to go back to bed and, and relax and kind of do those things and uh, it, yeah logistically it, it's really challenging and, and there's more fact more to it than just changing meal timings you know that I think we mentioned that right at the beginning at that was one of my initial failings is just just focusing on it yeah, we'll just split like split the meals a little bit uh, change the composition of the meal slightly just hit the targets um, and then yeah you, you can go you can go away and, and get on with it but the, the reality is it's very very different yeah well we look I mean we've spent ages talking about you know the complexity of this the challenges you know the the difference between you know what we you know what we might want to do and what they're doing because it is a you know it is a religious period the constraints of travel and being in team settings and obviously not everyone that's doing this is in a team setting or playing football or, or whatever so maybe uh, what we should do is just just put our nutritionist hats on just for a minute and go well okay look the scenario is what it is if we take it away from traveling athletes and so on and we go look you know, it's Ramadan. There's what, another three weeks or so left, roughly. And, um, you know, whether they're, you know, training for football or training for just looking good or for health and, and fitness, they, they all have this thing in common, which is, you know, um, from sunrise uh, to sundown, you know, they have these constraints. What are the main priorities that you feel um, that they should be focusing on. Um, what are the things they maybe shouldn't be worrying about so much? Um, given it is only one month, um, although yes, a lot a lot of things can go wrong in one month if you're not careful. But but yeah, what are the priorities and what are the let's not worry about you know and, and what are the myths maybe that they don't need to worry about? Yeah, well, it's actually a good point you make. Uh, right at the beginning of that question uh, relating to like people using this period of time to optimize body composition and things like that and that's actually one thing that i experienced over in the middle east is people do actually like utilize this time like quite positively and they think about about fasting and, and they relate that to okay well maybe i can lose some body weight and that kind of presents itself in in, in the research as well actually and uh, there is a, like a, a modest amount of, of body fat loss potentially 
um, over the period of time, but that's rapidly, rapidly regained during the Eid festivities. Um, but yeah, I think there is a, like a positive connotation around uh, the Ramadan fasting and utilizing it uh, to, to optimize or, or improve body composition. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think we touched on it a little bit earlier, but focusing first and foremost on, on total and um, intake of, of energy and, and macronutrients and also um, ensuring that diet quality is, is, is high. So uh, hitting the micronutrient needs, vitamins, minerals, fiber, um, and I mean, meat, uh, staying hydrated or rehydrating within, within the short window is, is quite challenging. Um, but yeah, just hitting those, 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 um, those targets, I, I guess you could say, uh, within the, the window, um, whether that be two meals or, or three meals. I guess if you look at like protein research uh, and protein distribution, you could say that, that uh, it's, it's probably better to have three, but then obviously it really depends on uh, where you are. Um, and also it depends if uh, I know that um, some, some players that I currently work with, that they, they don't actually wake up all that consistently for, at 3 a.m. for the Sahur, um, the, so the first meal of, of the day. Um, so that's probably because they're, they're tired from looking after their kids. And so they then miss a meal and then they've only got one meal or two meals. So the, there, is, there is a lot to it. And you almost have to end up micromanaging day to day. Um, and obviously manipulating meals later in the day if they miss something earlier in the day. And um, it, it, is, it is difficult and, and challenging, um, but it's enjoyable. And that's what, what kind, of, um, kind of, I guess, excites us as, as sports nutritionists. You face with this like, new challenge. And um, yeah, so in terms of uh, going back to the question, I think meeting total needs for energy, uh, macronutrients, vitamins, minerals, um, fiber and fluids. And then I guess you could probably kind of dis- sacrifice uh, timing i mean you're gonna have to because uh you're, you're fast. <laughs> yeah, you're, um, you're, and then uh, obviously ensuring diet quality so ensuring those the calories and macronutrients that you're consuming are high quality and, and that can be quite difficult when you take into account the fact that traditional foods uh, that are consumed during this time are, are typically higher in sugar they're higher in fat um they're, they're quite quite processed like if you think about like a, a, a traditional drink, I think it's called a jalab. It's, it's, it's essentially um, like Coca-Cola. It's like a syrup, like a syrup drink. And, and then you have Amali. By the way, you probably experienced Amali. Amali is absolutely fantastic. It's like rice pudding, but made with like croissant. Mm. I, I, if I could find a restaurant here in England that sells that, I think I'd be there every single day. It's, <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so the, the diversity of the diet definitely changes during that time. And um, so, yeah, the, there's, there's numerous considerations, but I think focusing on the, 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 to, the total, uh, total energy and ensuring that that is... Uh, there's, two, there's two areas that tend to go wrong there, isn't there? There's either people, um, they're over-consuming. And as you mentioned, they just got the quality, you know, the balance completely wrong. Uh, because you, you could over-consume, you know, on a basic level say vegetables and protein, you know, you're probably not going to run into trouble, but it's when it's high fat, high sugar, which is very prevalent in those diets. Of course, you know, it's a celebration. You don't want to have a boring, tasteless sort of high lean protein and vegetable, you know, broccoli and chicken breast. That's not really going to happen, is it? Um, um, or um, the other angle, of course, is uh, whether you hit, the energy balance or not, it might be at the consequence of not consuming enough protein, of course. And we're talking about athletes in particular. So um, 
um, there's that angle there. Uh, it, you know, look, they're not weighing their foods. They're not necessarily on my fitness pal or whatever basis. So there are any sort of quick sort of visual cues or, you know, practical elements to that that you think helps people judge whether or not, yeah, they're, they're roughly on point or not with this. Yeah, obviously, uh, in terms of like visual cues, um, I often like refer to like hand size, like serving sizes, but um, obviously on a podcast, you can't really kind of display that. But if you imagine you put your hand on your plate and you fill that space with like a, a carbohydrate, a starchy carbohydrate of some sort, and then the palm of your hand could like roughly be the, the protein. Um, and then the remainder of the plate could be kind of vegetables, um, I guess. And But that that's a very general rule. And it, I mean, if you, if you applied that, three times uh, you, you might be close um obviously certain people are going to need more carbohydrate than others so um it, you'd have to modify that uh, quite quite considerably but if we're looking for like a, a general rule then perhaps uh, perhaps perhaps that's uh, did you find uh, that did you find well. did you find with um so this is interesting um because if you're if you're not from that culture and you don't necessarily speak that language at least not fluently the communication side of this gets rather interesting. And yes, in team settings, um, one way or the other, you can over time at least get your points of view through to, to the chef, to the to doctors. And, you know, there's conversations and so on that go on. But, you know, practitioners, particularly with individual athletes, you know, to, rather than just writing out meal plans, the visualizer I found personally, like I used WhatsApp a lot using videos and GIFs and, and uh, I would photograph plates of food and then distribute that on my distribution list, you know, to the players, which would help them, you know, visualize what I wanted them to eat in the canteen um, and even rearrange foods around the canteen, for example, like I'd have the healthier foods, you know, right in front of them and the hard stuff to consume that I couldn't get the chef to ban right at the very back or I'd sneak, sneak them away if I could. Um, you know, what, what, you know, because this is very much a science to practice challenge that practitioners will find themselves in the real world, particularly with this scenario. What, what were the sort of things that you, you, you did to, to deal with that? Yeah, so shaping the environment is, is a key part of it. Um, so obviously, it's oftentimes you're in a hotel, so it's difficult to, to manage all that. But as you say, like moving the, the chafing dishes or whatever it's uh, served in, that, that can be a, a great idea. And obviously having the salads, kind of bar area like as soon as you walk in and i'm making it look presentable and making it look nice uh, that that can be that can be a good idea um and and yeah uh, i guess depending on the day's goals so you you can like modify uh, the the um the recipe i guess so like omali for instance you could replace like croissants which is typically higher in fat you could replace that with like bread perhaps uh, i think that we, we did that um although I'm not sure he did it because it tastes exactly the same. So uh, we, that's something that I recommended he do. Uh, but yeah, so you can play around with different recipes and redu like reducing the fat content um, and things like that. And, and uh, yeah, sh shaping the environment and um, yeah, and, and having like infographics translated uh, on on the um, on the tables uh, that can be that can be useful. Um, I guess the people that are in difficulty are the ones that aren't in that community team setting where they've got you know people like you and me involved and you know that sort of environment with a bit of hierarchy there that you know like coaches around who, who, who you know who who do expect the players to at least attempt to to take this seriously 
Um, but if you're on your own at home and the rest of your family are all tucking into whatever and enjoying their celebrations, but you're that individual athlete, life does get a bit more difficult, doesn't it? Which is, I guess, where you have to really take responsibility for that on your own. Did, I mean, have you, you know, you've mentioned you've got some of your West Ham players who are in that environment, I guess, to a certain extent. How, how do you deal with that? Yeah, but I, I'm still learning, so I'm not really sure the answer to that, you know, like, um, I, I guess it comes down to the individual as well. They, they, they've had, they've experienced it on numerous occasions, so they have coping mechanisms themselves, whether that be going to play FIFA or whatever it is they do, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll do something, maybe go, go to bed, um, avoid any kind of scenario where they could be like exposed to, to food and, and start thinking about food. But again, it comes back to that thing of like the big difference between like Islamic communities and, and here in the UK, like in, in, I remember when I was in Abu Dhabi, like the restaurants would shut down. And if, uh, so the first year I was there, I, I obviously did Ramadan and fasted, but I think it was the second or third year. Um, I, I didn't. And uh, it had actually made it more awkward because you'd have to like go into a different room and, and drink and eat and kind of like hide away. Um, so, uh, but, but here in the UK, it's like the opposite. Um, the, 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 obviously the Muslim athlete has to then, or the Muslim has to um, go hide away. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? I see yeah. the reason why I wanted to have this chat with you is firstly, very few people, on this planet have worked in those environments like we have it's really difficult you know uh to articulate you know our our, our desire to want to get super sciencey it's like most of my podcasts normally will you know talk about you know a bunch of studies and papers and so on and so forth but i have to say that this scenario is one particularly good example of how big that gap is between science and practice and i guess some of the listeners will be like, oh, but we still don't have, you know, the, we don't have the answer. Now, that's because there is one. You, you've got to, you, you know, you, yes, it's this month that occurs um, in your year and you've got to get through it. You've got to get through it and, and you need to celebrate it. And you've got your, you know, you've got your priorities. But there are, of course, as we said, some athletes do find themselves combining that with a campaign um you know like i found myself in two years ago you know with the world cup you know it, it, it is what it is so i guess it's about mitigating you know the risks the problems um ameliorating all the damage that can uh, occur and just trying to be sensible about it but also as i think you've helped us make it very clear that a lot of these concerns i think you know, particularly with things like football just aren't that warranted actually if we just maintain a degree of being sensible and clearly the logistics of this is where a huge huge problem comes because not enough thought is put into that combining of the training and the um the need to pray and the uh recovery and sleep uh, in fact i'll just quickly come back to that because i know sleep isn't specifically a nutrition thing but it does always tend to come back to us as performance to get involved in the whole sleep thing sleep hygiene and so on your thoughts and solutions um ideas and so on um about this given that sleep is definitely something that's impacted and it is one of those logistic things that we have to factor in um when we're trying to get some nutrition and hydration into into our athletes when when there is an opportunity when of course actually they would normally be asleep at other times of the year 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think like if I uh, reflect back on my, my first experience um, of, of dealing with Ramadan at, at Stoke City, I, I didn't really take any, any consideration about sleep. I, I just kind of manipulated the meal patterns and, and the meal composition. And sleep didn't really come into my mind, nor the social factors or anything like that. But, but you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, like timing of caffeine and things like that, like you, you don't, probably you probably don't necessarily want to be consuming like caffeine in the in Sahur, so like right at the beginning um of the day and um, uh, if you're going to go back to bed that is um and then also like later on in the day as well so like if if tar, if you're planning on going to bed um or, or if you're planning on going back back to sleep uh, sorry around midnight then it's probably not a great idea to consume uh, caffeine at those times and and then the 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 general volume of the meal uh, can interfere with sleep as well so uh, I spent some well I was fortunate enough to spend a week actually with Sharon Holson last year and mm. I picked her brains on on various aspects of sleep and yeah we were talking about the, the volume and, uh, of, of, of the meal the energy density the carbohydrate content and everything like that and if you think about Ramadan then it, yeah that that the meals generally do get bigger because they have to, because you've only got two, maybe maybe three opportunities to eat. So, so that can then interfere with uh, with sleep as well. Um, but yeah, if we just go back to the to the total, uh, same same thing with nutrition as well. If you just try and aim for the the same amounts of, of sleep, so like eight eight uh, eight hours, whatever whatever can, what the, the general recommendation is, I think it's around about around about eight hours. And it, yeah, if, I think personally. Uh, I'm not sure what your thoughts are if, if you're able to maintain that um, in some way um, and try not to um, kind of disturb that sleep. So try not to split it. Um, that's probably the best thing. But then uh, going back to my experiences with the Saudi national team, they essentially slept all day. They became nocturnal, um, which is probably not a great idea either. So you have to kind of think about like shaping it around what is practically possible. Um, and then that's going to differ from like, country to country and city to city almost so um yeah there's there's no real one size fits all um again i've done some great podcasts on uh on some of this stuff with shona halson yeah. um so i'll link to that and on the notes on this because um there are some ways of dealing with that, particularly with traveling athletes and also uh you know the importance of napping and so on and so forth and I guess one of my observations of this was with athletes that had a lot of disturbed sleep, it, you know, the impact of that on their appetite, um, the leptin and ghrelin, you know, thing um, might have an, you know, might increase their likelihood of eating some of the wrong stuff when they could eat, um, which doesn't help if you're, you're knackered already because of the disturbed patterns. Um, and then you, uh, yeah. You add you add the uh, the impact of eating some of the wrong stuff. It can it can go pretty badly. Um, so just just because we're talking a little bit about supplements, we'll make this the final because we've been talking for ages now. So the and I know we could this actually is hours and hours of, of stuff we could get into. Yeah. Supplements now, you know supplements are in are, whatever topic you get into in sport and exercise nutrition. Supplements is always an interesting one. Um, and of course, if we you know we look at the pyramid you know, um, and the hierarchy of priority and so on. We know that supplements are actually not that important for the most part, but they, they, they can have their uses. Um, and of course, in this scenario, during Ramadan, there are some supplements that you might consider to support performance. You've already mentioned like caffeine, um, caffeine gum, caffeinated uh, uh, 
drinks and so on, but caffeine gum is something that you may or may not be able to get around during the day because you're not you're not actually swallowing it. Although, in my experience, the players wouldn't even do caffeine. Most of them wouldn't even do caffeine gum because anything that goes in the mouth they felt was construed as consuming and eating and so on. Um, so there's that angle. But, and also, like you said, consuming caffeine at times of the day that impacts sleep. Um, but also, you know, protein shakes, um, you know, middle of the night, um, after prayers, before prayers, and so on. Did, did you have any thoughts or observations that you felt were worth um, quickly adding into the end of this chat? Yeah, absolutely. So going back to like the distribution of protein, I think um, like prior to sleep was was an opportunity. So um, to, to add an additional like dosage of protein if we if we didn't meet that like one point six to one point eight grams per kilogram target. So uh, yeah, we, we topped up um, protein with a with a well, it, it varied in composition. It was a protein rich snack. It was either a protein shake, uh, like a, a protein yogurt. So we just mixed um, protein into yogurt because they didn't necessarily like the <laughs> protein shakes. Um, and then we added some like fruits and things like that to it. So, and that was consumed uh, around about midnight. Uh, and then ideally they would like kind of disappear off to bed. Um, so that was obviously formed one, one part of uh, the supplementation plan. And uh, we provided uh, multivitamins because we, we realized that, okay, well, the, um, they are likely to run into a vitamin deficiency and somewhere along the line and um, also nitrates. So obviously their, their intake of uh, dark leafy greens and spinach and, and kale and things like that, that, dropped off quite considerably and uh, so, so topping up uh, with, with nitrate supplementation beetroot juice um, the, the shots um, and then if, if we consider uh, the fact that the research kind of shows that, that there is an impact on like power output and repeated sprintability then uh, adding things like creatine so we loaded players on creatine so uh, and also beta alanine uh, might play its part and as you mentioned uh, caffeine as well and uh, because we, we were dealing with travel as well uh, we added like the immune functional elements so um, the, the probiotics as well and uh, we took um, some of those zinc uh, chewing gums but we didn't we didn't utilize them um, mainly because they the players didn't really like them I guess yeah um, I found that a lot of these strategies that you have that happily get used over here weren't necessarily something they they wanted to use because it's just yeah. totally not with their culture or... yeah and i think the frequency as well obviously you have to take like multiple it's not just one a day it's, it's a few uh, more than a few in fact so um yeah that, that didn't go down so well so yeah well i i think that's one of those things that you might you might have in your toolbox of options strategies and you just still need to apply some critical thinking to that you know it's my comment about you can but should you you know there's a lot yeah, to think about. Yeah. i think that's the thing is there's a lot to think about um but like you say you know the total type and timing timing not so important because you haven't got much choice in it anyway but you know total and type and quality and and so on are all you know it's just your usual nutrition sort of focus yeah. that's that's a great point i think lauren i think the, the more I thought about it over, over the years, I, I think maybe I was like trying to delve too, uh, too much into the details. And maybe it's just a case of like trying to restore like, or maintain normality. And you just have a, a slightly longer period between meals. And I think if you can get into that mindset, um, I think that, that will certainly help. Um, and yeah, obviously you, you choose the sacrificial lamb, which is just the, the protein timing. Um, and then, yeah, you just try and try and maintain normality. And, 
um, I mean, in, in the military environment, we were able to do some like pretty cool, like concurrent training, things like that, because we had control. But um, in other, in other, like in football, for instance, they, they didn't want to go about the, the whole two, two training sessions a day thing. But um, that's probably another conversation altogether. It is. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of conversations that spin off this. And I think, you know, I think we'll bring this to a close because we've been going on for, I mean, this is quite a long podcast actually. So um, it'll keep people, it'll take up a fair chunk of their day whilst they otherwise would be thinking um, or, or going to eat. And all we're doing is reminding them that they can't eat and want to eat. And anyway, you know, <laughs> um, but um, I think we can conclude, can't we? That um, I think one of the biggest focuses has to be on just trying to simplify things don't overcomplicate matters because that's half the issue here isn't it and and um you know it's one of these phrases that i, I those of us that are you know technically minded when it comes to evidence-based practice we hate words like you know just eat clean or eat a quality diet but that is kind of kind of where we're going with this because that's actually where the biggest problems are is people just tend to not eat well um and that's that's the big big old risk with this scenario i think more than any other really yeah and i think it's also worth highlighting that it, it's one period uh, within within the calendar year and um yeah it's, it's a celebration and it's kind of family time it's like yeah it's, it's it is a big a big celebration so um yeah you've got to enjoy it i suppose indeed well it's important isn't it um so listen matt i what i'm going to do is i think what we'll do is we'll wrap it up uh, you know there i'm going to link to you've written a blog post uh, a couple of years ago now um yeah um that contains loads of in, useful information in fact the rest of your blog is a very uh, i don't normally reference blogs but yours is a really strong evidence-based um um, blog with some great articles um, by yourself and some of your guests who are all you know highly experienced well-educated practitioners such as yourself so um, I think that's a resource I'm going to recommend and I'll also recommend a few other papers and articles um, that I think that adds to this but this is one of those areas that um, you know, there isn't so much science and evidence uh, it's emerging but it's not quite there um, so hopefully we can add to that particularly from practice and You've, you've shared loads of invaluable information, Matt. So I'm really grateful for your, your time today. Um, if people want to follow you on social media, what's your, what's your website and Twitter and so on? I'll link to that. Yeah, so uh, the blog you're referring to um, is uh, Sport Perf X, so Sport Performance Explained. Um, that's kind of, uh, that's, the, that's the website .com, I think it is. Um, and then my, my Twitter is uh, Matt Jones NC. Uh, and then Instagram is like pictures of my son. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. proud old yeah. dad. Um, but yeah, that, that's probably where, where you find me most. No, thank you so much. Um, so I hope everyone benefits from that. It's one of these things, there are way more questions than answers, but hopefully... Um, Hopefully we've, we've managed to entertain people for an hour and a half or whatever it's been. And, um, and, and, and everyone, you know, can take something from that. And, um, um, you know, it's Ramadan uh, Mubarak. Yeah, Ramadan Mubarak, Ramadan Kareem to everyone. Yeah. Indeed. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Um, well, that brings us to the end of this uh, We Do Science uh, episode. 
you can learn about all our other episodes and uh, some of them I'll link to that are relevant to this conversation at www.theiopn.com where of course you can learn about all our other uh, outputs, our videos and our um, advanced training and education programs in sport and exercise nutrition. I am uh, Laurent Banner. I look forward to bringing another episode back to you very soon. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.